read also the Psalm 19 scripture. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom for his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this week we uh, have a new staff member joining our, our team. Uh, our director of Next Gen Ministries is actually going to be uh, starting this week, and so we're super excited about welcoming Kevin to be uh, in that position, and he might actually be in the room right now, sitting right somewhere over right there. But we're delighted that uh, Kevin and Colleen are here and JP. So. And looking forward to uh, partnering uh, with them in, in ministry as we go forward together as a staff, but also as a congregation. Well, this morning's psalm is a, uh, is a psalm that when you first read it, uh, it's in, uh, looks like it's in multiple parts. It's like uh, when you think about Mr. Potato Head, uh, if you ever play with the Mr. Potato Head or you've seen someone play with that and they start sticking all kinds of random parts together, this psalm is one of those psalms. It feels like that upon first reading of what's going on here? There's like three parts that seem disconnected that are all now connected together to form what we have as Psalm 19. But when we look closely at the text itself, we come to find that there's actually in it, there is a sense of sequence, there's a sense of design uh, for why these parts come together. It's also uh, an amazing psalm. In fact, it comes with a major endorsement from somebody that you've heard of before, a gentleman named Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, uh, said this about Psalm 19. He said, it's the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Uh, it's hard to mistake how C.S. Lewis felt about Psalm 19. 
And of course, with that high praise, the psalm starts out with uh, kind of this sweeping uh, style. Look at what it says in the beginning of our text. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. As we go to this text this morning, I want us to have in mind uh, a picture from my childhood, but also one that you're all going to be well familiar with. Uh, Have you ever seen Family Feud? You ever watched The Family Feud? I remember as a kid, uh, was it Richard Dawson was the host of Family Feud? That's probably the, the one that I remember the most. And he, and he would, with distinct style, would look at the survey board, right? And he would go, what does the survey say? And then all of a sudden things would spin over and you'd see if the answer is right or X's would come on the screen and stuff. But there's a question there. What does the survey say? Well, here in this psalm, I want us to have that in our, our minds and our background here as we look at each of these sections because we're going to ask ourselves, what does the respective category say as we come to them? And the first one we see is, what does creation say? What do we see in verses 1 through 6 that creation says? Well, in Hebrew, the first verse begins and ends with heavens and firmament, or what we might say is skies. And so that's the first and last word of the Hebrew sentence that starts out this psalm. And that's by particular design. What the psalmist is trying to do is have the reader, as you enter into this psalm, evoke a kind of a response uh, within us. It's an attempt to get us as a reader to look at the heavens and the skies, to turn to those things and ask the question, what do we see when we come to those places? when we see those, those particular uh, parts of creation. Of course, many in the ancient world uh, would have concluded a number of different things to that, that very question. Some, in fact, uh, would have worshipped the objects themselves. They would have looked up to the skies, and they would have given worship uh, to those things. Or what we see in Job chapter 31, a practice from the ancient world, where it said they would kiss their hand uh, to the sky. It's kind of like us when we blow kisses. The folks. They would do the same type of thing. It's a, it's a sign of, of, in our case, love. In their case, it would be reverence or revering those particular things. Others might have looked at the celestial figures like the sun itself and said, this is a manifestation of, of the God that we worship or the deity that we serve. But the psalmist here wants to invite us to an altogether different response. Instead, what we're to see as we look at these things is found Uh, in what the things themselves say. Now, we need to note, first of all, that in verse 3, it's clear that these objects don't speak. They're mute. And we know that. Have you had a conversation with the sun recently? Have you you talked to the moon? Maybe you have. Please don't tell us if you have or not. But these things that we hear in verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words. uh, Their voices are not heard. But look what verse 4 says. Yet their voice goes out, and that voice speaks of God's greatness, of God's glory, of God's power, of what God is and has been able to achieve. And what are those things? That God creating the heavens and the the things that embody or inhabit those places, the bodies that inhabit that. About the orderliness we see. We'll pick that theme up in the second part of verse 4 through verse 6 about the sun as it travels through the sky. Uh, this sense that there's an orderliness to these things, there's, there's a design that exists here, these pieces, and, and each of these things speak to uh, the power and the ability of God. So impactful is the testimony of the heavens that St. Francis of Assisi, in his Canticle of the Sun, will declare, Be praised, my Lord, through all your creatures, especially through my Lord, Brother Sun, who brings the day, and you give light through him, and he is beautiful and radiant in all his splendor. 
And that's just one of the, a number of different natural phenomenon, uh, different things spoken of within the canticle of the sun that Francis teases out there. But Francis lived a thousand years ago, right? That guy was here like a thousand years ago. That's a long time ago. And the psalmist was even longer ago than that. What do these people know about the modern world, right? Us moderns, postmoderns, or post-postmoderns, wherever we're at now. What, what do they know about us? We know so much more about space, right? We know so much more about these celestial bodies. We don't need the ancients to tell us about these things. I mean, that might have been great a thousand years ago before Netflix, but come on now. When we look at the objects in the sky, when we look deeper into space, when we create things like Hubble telescopes and stuff, does our a sense of awe and wonder get any less? The more that we know about these different things, it seems like it gets bigger, more grander. Take the sun, for instance. This past week, I got way into the sun, and I'm not saying that because I went outside and didn't work all week and enjoyed the summer sun. That's not what this means. I did some research on the sun, and here's what I found. Number one, no-brainer, the sun is big. <laughs> really, really big. In fact, they estimate if you hollowed the sun out, you could fit something like 960,000 Earths inside it. That's a big, big thing, huh? Now, if you squished the Earths together so there wasn't any space between them, you could fit 1.3 million Earths in there. So the sun is huge. Second thing I learned about the sun is the sun is fast. You don't really think about the sun being fast, right? I mean, come on, sun, how fast can you be? It takes, it takes you a day to get over the planet, right? But the sun is fast. It's traveling at, and this is what they estimate it to be, 134 uh, miles a second. A second. I can't wrap my brain around that. 134 miles a second. That's fast. And as it orbits around the center of the Milky Way galaxy, uh, the, going that fast, you know how long it's going to take for it to go all the way around the Milky Way galaxy? They estimate between 225 and 250 million years going that fast. These things are enormous. The sun is huge. The galaxy is even bigger. But we go on. The sun is hot. That's why I learned the same. Now, you know that. The sun's hot, right? Even in the desert, the sun is hot. But it is really hot. In fact, uh, inside the sun, if you were to go inside the sun, they estimate that the internal temperature at some places is 27 million degrees Celsius. That's hot. <laughs> That's really hot. On the surface, if we do it in Fahrenheit, something we can understand uh, here in this country, it's between 9 and 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface. That is hot. So the sun is big, the sun is fast, it's hot. And when we hear numbers like that, and we try to wrap our brains around that, and, and these are, you know, as science uh, advances, even still this causes us to pause. It stills us. It causes us to, to stop for a moment and think, that's enormous. That's huge. That's awesome. And as we wrap our brains around that, or try to wrap our brains around that, we're reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul, who wrote uh, to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, if you remember, ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So these big, enormous things, these huge, awesome things that cause us to stop and pause, they remind us of someone even bigger who's awesome, who's even more powerful, even bigger. So let me pause us here for a moment 
and ask a question here. Actually, I want to invite you to ask a, a personal question in your heart right now. If your prayer life is stalled out, it's, it's real easy for it to stall out. Here we are in the season of, of COVID, a season that we don't know how long it will last. It seems to come up with, with some different manifestation each week, month, year that this goes on. It's very easy for us in the circumstance of life, even without COVID, to come to a place where our prayer life might become stale and stall out. And as I look at the psalmist here, I see some great instruction right from the beginning on what should we do when we find ourselves at that place. And here is what my recommendation would be to you and from the psalmist as well. If you find yourself in that place, go outside. Turn off the TV. Turn off all the lights on your house. Go to the darkest place that you can find, but be outside and look up. Look up into the sky and just soak it in. Take in the things that you see across that entire sky. Look at the stars. Look at all the things that are passing by and be reminded that there's something big out there, but there's someone bigger who created those things. And allow that to pour over you and refresh your soul and to refresh your prayer life, to reset it so that you might once more offer praise. But the psalmist would offer this to us as well. Going outside is not enough. It's not enough. It'd be great if I could just go outside all the time, live a life of recreation and ease, look at the sky, that's it, done, easy, easy peasy. The psalmist says in verses 7 through 10, that we have to do something else. And this section of the psalm is one where it gets personal. Where we find out that when we look up to the skies, we see the what. The psalmist goes on and says, but when we look inside the scripture, we see the who. So it's going to get personal here. But it's not just personal about who God is. It also talks about what God wants for each one of us. As we look at Torah, we see this in, in the psalm. At Torah, we come to know God, of course. The heavens tell us what God is capable of are capable of uh, God's revealed instruction. The Torah essentially tells us who God is. And note here in this particular section that who God is changes. Right in the first section, God is just described as God. It's using a kind of a generic word, a catch-all word used in Hebrew for the name God. El Elohim uh, is, the, is the words that we see there for God. When we get to the second section, you'll notice what's employed there is you'll see there's all capitals. There's L-O-R-D or what we call the Tetragrammaton. And this is the covenant name of God now shows up in the second part. This God who can be known. But note this about what we learn about the personal. In the God's instruction, in the Torah, we see uh, not only who God is, but we also see the great benefit that God has for each one of us. Reviving the soul is one of the words we see there. The Torah makes us wise. God's instruction helps us to rejoice in heart. It enlightens the eyes themselves. It's no wonder that this instruction is described as being desired more than the finest and the sweetest things in this world. I was reading this past week uh, from a rabbi, Dean Shapiro, uh, who, is, who used to be, up until this last spring, uh, was at Temple Emmanuel in Tempe, and he talks about the Torah this way. He says, it's a symbol of the love shared between God and the Jewish people. If you're talking about that, if you're taking it, summarize what Torah means to Jewish people. It's a symbol of love shared between God and the Jewish people. So much so that uh, there's one particular uh, strand of Judaism that's kind of a mystical form of Judaism 
Uh, and what they do is they teach that on the day that uh, Jews celebrate the reception of Torah, uh, which lands on the same time that Christians celebrate Pentecost, on that particular day, they consider that their marriage night. It's a celebration of that. So they see this as being a shared love between God and God's people. And so when they study Torah on that night, their hope in this particular group is that they might achieve some kind of mystical union with God. I don't know if your Bible study has quite turned out that way, if you've felt that way about it, but to see the contours of how someone might understand the psalm, Psalm 19, even going to Psalm 119, how they might understand the greatness of this instruction that God has given to us. It's an important thing for us to hear and see as we ourselves too strive uh, to be faithful to see God not only outside but also inside, inside the scripture here at this point. But besides being a personal connection for each one of us, the psalmist teases out one more thing. So we see what creation says. We see what God's word revealed says. But this text here invites you and I to also respond. Invites us as readers and hearers to have a response, and we see that in the latter part of the psalm, beginning in verse 11. Notice what the, the psalmist says here. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can detect their errors? Clear me from my hidden faults. Now, as you're hearing this psalm, and you're kind of, it's, it's moving from these different places, you might say, I think I detect a familiar pattern there. If you do detect that, you get a gold star today. Because there is a pattern here. One commentator noted uh, that this pattern is one that goes all the way back to the beginning of Scripture. Remember Genesis chapter 1, the creation of all the world, the creation of the firmaments, the creation of the luminaries that fill those skies. Those things happen in Genesis chapter 1, and it's, as it's laid out there, God is referred to as El or Elohim the general, generic God of creation. We saw that in this first section of this psalm. But then when God begins to speak to humanity, there's the introduction of, again, the Lord shows up in Genesis chapter 2. And as we get to Genesis chapter 3, we recognize that humanity is presented with an opportunity to live faithful lives of gratitude as an expression to their creator. Of course, they choose to do something far more sinister. And we see that pattern here in our psalm as well. We see the movement from the creation, the generic God listed, to the personal, the Lord who gives instruction to his people. And now we're brought to our own response. We as readers and those who celebrate here in the psalm who pray these things. And so there's familiar contours here that exist. But when we're measured, when measured by the awesomeness of the heavens outside and the exactness of God's instruction, the psalmist here has a response that's similar to the response of Isaiah, who was confronted by the living God. There's a response and a, a sense of, I lack what it takes. There's something broken in me. There's something missing. There's a peace that's corrupt in me. And I don't stand before a holy God as one who's proudful and arrogant. And that's certainly the psalmist here says, I don't want to be that type of person. I don't want to be rude and proud, as we see in verse 13. But instead... I need God's instruction, but even more so, I need another thing that we see in Scripture. I need God's grace. And the promise of this particular psalm ends on a note when we think about the vastness and bigness of everything. 
It ends on something that's so personal and so uh, specific here that it gets much smaller than those big things that it started out with. And what it ends with is God's salvation for you. That God who is the rock and redeemer is not the rock and redeemer of space, of Jupiter, of the Milky Way galaxy, but instead the psalmist, and for each one of us as we pray the psalm, that it's our rock and our redeemer who rescues us, who gives us and brings us salvation. And so as we uh, close this time of pondering this particular text this morning, I want to draw our attention to a quote uh, that I read this past week from John Muir. It says this, The world's big, and I want to have a good look at it before it gets dark. The world's big, and I want to have a good look at it before it gets dark. Friends, as we go from this place this week, as we step out into a creation, out into a world that is what a friend of mine used to refer to as ginormous, we see all the creation before us, and we see the beauty that exists in that creation, and we put inside our hearts a sense of deep awe, and gratitude for what God has achieved in that. And as we come to God's word and we see that God's love across each and every one of those pages, that God's instruction is a gift to us to help us to lead lives that are just as full as that gigantic universe, that are full and faithful and overflowing. And as we recognize our need for a savior, a need for redemption, a need for liberation, we learn in each and every single one of those phases that we're not disappointed. So friends, go from this place. Go and be ones who want to take a good look at all that God has created before it gets dark. And when you do, you can't help but to see the God of all creation, your rock and your redeemer. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this day for your great love. And we can say the word great in there because we recognize how great the various celestial bodies that exist in this creation are, how much more greater is your love that you gave of yourself that we might have life and not just any kind of life, that we might have a life that is to the full. And so this morning, Lord, this prayer of the psalmist, we pray that this would be our prayer as well, that we would see you and that we'd offer rightful expressions of gratitude, that we'd hear your voice and that we would respond with faithful actions, that we'd recognize in our own selves the need for you in our lives, and that we would offer our own expressions of desire and hopefulness, knowing that you meet each and every single one of those expressions with a faithful expression of your own. Praise be to the God who created all things. May you be glorified in our lives as well. 